Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our digital director, Mike Hogan, is on vacation this week, and hopefully we'll be coming back to New York soon because uh, our schedule for this week kind of got scuttled because our plan was to do a preview of South by Southwest, which is the uh, annual festival in Austin, Texas, that Joanna was going to cover for us. Um, Joanna, you emailed kind of early last week saying, listen, I know it might be overreacting, but I think I'm going to cancel my trip. Like, it doesn't feel safe in this time of coronavirus. And and then I kind of thought, you know what, that seems like responsible, but maybe overreacting. And then a couple of days later, the whole festival was canceled. So uh, good for you for being ahead of the curve, I guess. Yeah, I think everyone thought I was overreacting, which I'm fine with. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> even some of the South by organizers were like, "We think you're overreacting." I was like, "Yeah, I, it's it's okay." You're like, you "Just you that. wait. You no, come, no, come no, back no, to no. me Friday." No, because I'm I am heartbroken for them. Honestly, um, this was a decision that the Austin government made for them. I don't think South by would ever have uh, canceled. I don't know about ever, but. Um, Despite all the things that were happening, they really wanted to keep the the show going, um, and that's evident, you know, from their various statements that they've made uh, since the news that this was this is like firmly against their will. Today, it was announced that they had to lay off a third of their staff uh, because of the huge financial hit they're going to take. Yeah, so that this part's is just, really devastating. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I like health concerns are of the most like are the most important. I'm not trying to minimize that but the the huge financial impact this is going to have on austin both on south by directly and then all the like people who are employed around the festival uh i've heard from a number of people that restaurants are going to close because of this and then you think you'd like there are all these people that you don't necessarily think about like the carpenters who build the installations or the guys who make the neon signs or whoever it is you know it's just like this is it's a 10 day citywide festival, you know, which is just, it's, I think, more of a, you know, knit into the fabric of Austin than most other, you know, f- regular film festivals are because there's the music festival and all these venues are involved and all this sort of stuff. And it's just, it's, it's devastating, really. 
maybe there is one silver lining in that it's possible now that Tribeca Film Festival gets to world premiere a Judd Apatow movie versus playing it after South by Southwest. <laughs> so, and it's got Staten Island in the title, so really Tribeca right. should have. Although, Richard, I mean, realistically, I don't know how much of like on the ground talk you're hearing, but like, is Tribeca going to happen? You know, I don't know. Um, during Tribeca, which is the middle of next month, I'm actually supposed to be in Olympia, Washington uh, at the, their film festival. I'm, I programmed a couple movies and I'm doing a couple panels. One that's a Bridget Fonda career retrospective, which I'm very excited about. Um, oh. But it's in Olympia, Washington. You have to fly into Seattle to get there. And Seattle is, from what I can tell, the sort of epicenter of the American outbreak of yeah. uh, COVID-19. And so it's like, well... Is that even happening? I just don't know. I mean, it, I just feel like it, like everything is in this limbo and movies are delaying release dates and, and it just feels like all everyone's clearing the deck. So I, I, I don't think it would be surprising if Tribeca did the same uh, pretty soon. Well, and Cannes is kind of the big domino that some people are waiting to fall. Like it's yeah. at the end of May, so there's a little bit more time, but also France is uh, kind of suffering this outbreak uh, maybe even more than we are. So, I mean... Is that the one that you're most worried about, maybe? Well, yeah. The French government um, originally had said no gatherings over 5,000 people until at least May 31st, uh, my birthday. Um, and, and that's why they picked the date. Um, yeah, and, obviously. Um, and then so, you know, Thierry Fermo, the head of Cannes, was like, well, none of our venues are, you know, c- can seat 5,000, so we're okay. But it's like, yeah, but the whole festival is many, many thousands more people, and it's all basically in one building, um, you know, the Palais, the kind of whole structure there um, that has several theaters of the market down in the basement, which is very close quarters. You know, there's tens of thousands of people who go to this thing. Um, I just don't see how they can do it. I mean, n- not that this really matters in an age of, you know, airplane connectivity, but like they're very close to Northern Italy where like the European sort of uh, epicenter of the outbreak. So it's just like, I just, I'm, I'm holding out hope that in a month from now, um, they're scheduled to announce the, the lineup for the festival on April 16th. Uh, ironically, the day that Tribeca is, is set to start as is this one in Olympia, Washington that I'm going to. Um, you know, so maybe they'll say in a month, oh, well, you know, it's still a month away. Things are better. We're going to we're going to we're going to do this thing. But I'm not feeling very optimistic, which is disappointing because, you know, last year's can was so good. And I was excited to see what, um, you know, the follow up year looked like. The other concern, frankly, is that maybe they, they're going to have the festival. I fly there and then the U.S. government won't let me back into the States yeah. because I was in France, you know, so. Yeah. Or they the France won't let you in because by then we'll have sure. screwed up our response so badly that uh, you'll beat the flight risk. Yeah. So it's all, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it feels silly to be talking about like movie festivals when people are thousands of people are, are dead and dying. Um, but, uh, you know, the, here is one of the ripple effects of one of the many ripple effects of this uh, this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like for for someone like me who has kind of a very rudimentary understanding of the stock market and supply chains and all this kind of stuff, following South by and then Taco Tribeca and Can is a way for me to kind of grasp all the ripple effects that you're talking about, Richard. Like just how much this very much ongoing situation, like by the time this episode comes out, that may have changed dramatically since then. Um, and Joanna, you were mentioning earlier kind of ripple effects within Austin on South by. You've been doing some reporting, talking to people like in Austin connected to the festival. Like what? Like, what sense of, like, long-term um, shakeup are you seeing as a result of this cancellation? I mean, it's it's devastating for the town. There's a few things, you know, that people are trying to do. Like, um, I know a bunch of people aren't canceling their trip to Austin, maybe because they can't change their flight at this point. But um, I know that there's a number of people still going 
and planning to just spend a lot of money in Austin locally. People in Austin are being encouraged to shop locally to support people. Um, I spoke yesterday with uh, Jesse Malton, who's the daughter of film critic uh, Leonard Malton, and also just a really wonderful voice in the sort of film you know, film Twitter, film film world, and uh, she is organizing sort of a festival um, in Los Angeles. She's working with the Alamo Draft House in Los Angeles to try to bring a lot of the festivals, a lot of the shorts, a lot of the like these. You know, it's one thing. You know, I'm I'm not knocking Richard for making that Apatow joke. It was a good one, but it's one thing. Like the studios will have their premieres, but there's all these like smaller filmmakers, shorts filmmakers. Um, you know, for, uh, a friend of ours, Eric Vespi, got, you know, a short film. I talked to him yesterday. And so Jesse, Jesse has done this amazing work of like, I think a lot of people are out there thinking like, what can we do to support the filmmakers of South by, but not really knowing what steps to take. And Jesse just sort of got the ball rolling in a number of ways they're working on. So they're working on screening a bunch of these films at um, the draft house in LA, as, as you know, uh, Tim League and the Alamo Draft House, they're an Austin institution. And so Tim is working directly with the South by Festival to sort of, you know, hopefully make this LA based scaled down version still happen. They're looking to do uh, a press day at the Alamo for these filmmakers, um, you know, like get interviewed by Leonard Moulton. Like that's, you know, that's something. And, um, and then also they're working with an online, I don't think it's official yet, so I can't say who, but they're working with an online, uh, you know, streaming service to try to get as many of these films as possible up online so that people can review them, uh, you know, remotely at least. Um, it's not the same, obviously. Uh, I will just say that uh, Jesse Moulton gave me a blessing to give out her the email. So it's moultonfest at gmail.com. If you have anything, you know, if you're a filmmaker and you're listening to this or if you can help in any way, that is something that, um, you know, you can direct your helpless, like, what do I do? What do I do? Sort of energy towards um, to help both the filmmakers. And she's also heard from a lot of the Austin vendors. Like she said some cookie company had made like thousands of cookies already and they were like we don't know what to do with these thousands of cookies that we you oh know like God. pre-made and froze can we send them to you sort of thing so um or, or no she she posted a link and people are just like buying the cookies because it's like it's it's you know it's a public service there's a lot of gofundmes going around for awesome businesses for freelance journalists who like make a huge chunk of their money out of the year by going to south by and reviewing films and um they don't have the the framework that we do um, as full-time employees to have like, you know, the, the uh, consistent income. And so these kinds of festivals are just like their bread and butter and, and maybe they can't cancel their flights. And so they have to go to Austin anyway and just hang out. So, you know, people, people are really trying to sort of put a silver lining on this, but I think, I think we won't know for years to come, like what this did to the city. Once again, like, you know, I pulled out early, like public safety, like health and concerns. I'm not trying to say, you know, the Austin uh, government should not have canceled this event, but I also, you know, I, I, it's, I know that it was a terrible, like frustrating choice that for everyone. You know. Well, and you also see like Coachella postponing uh, and a couple other festivals are finding ways to do that too. And you kind of wonder if like maybe if they'd had more time or if it had been done differently, like South by could have postponed in theory. Um, but coming up when it was like supposed to be this week, it's like it, it was all just coming so fast that it felt like they didn't really have much other choice. Right. You know, and um, it's possible that we will just know more 
I mean, that's the problem is like, at least in America, not that this, this is not a political podcast, but you know, someone was asking me like why I thought people were reacting the way that they're reacting, like oh, possibly overreacting. And I keep saying that I think it's because there's just a sense of lack of leadership, you know, reassuring us that everything's going to be fine. Uh, from everything we've seen from the people who are in charge of this in Washington, it just doesn't seem confidence building. And so then we're left to our own like scroll brain devices. Uh, and I think that's where we get where we are right now. You're saying that the leadership from the guy who wore the gas mask on the house floor to uh, make fun of people taking precautions who then had to self quarantine. That's not uh, encouraging. I mean, yeah. Um, the thing that I keep thinking of that isn't really a good comparison, except that in terms of ripple effects is the writer's strike in 2007 and 2008, which I'm fascinated by because it's, you get all of these movies and TV shows that are like weird or have truncated seasons or the scripts are terrible. And it's all because of the writer's strike and, and you have right. to kind of like follow the threads back. And I'm wondering, like watching movie releases get delayed and like, you know, Daniel Craig's last James Bond movie is going to be weird because it was delayed by this. I feel like all of these tiny little things are going to come out of that. Or even thinking about like last year's can Parasite is, you know, premiered there and that's where that whole Oscar run started. So it seems very possible we'll be sitting here next February talking about the Oscar race and about how all of this, um, you know, hopefully this virus is not nearly as devastating as it could be, but it could still have major impact for years like yeah. that. Yeah. The biggest movie that I think could most immediately uh, be affected by this, um, you know, the Bond movie kind of moved out of April to November to get out of the way of it, which I think th those movies belong in November anyway, but is Mulan, um, yeah. which is out at the end of this month. And it was supposed to be this huge global release. Um, you know, one of the main markets obviously being China, um, which, you know, my understanding is that the Chinese government has been like, okay, we're going to get back to business as usual. But like, I don't, I think that, like, in a couple weeks' time, I don't think that's going to, you know, be really feasible that they're going to get tons of audiences going to movies in droves, nor are they here or anywhere else around the world. And that movie, which was something of a gamble to begin with, given how expensive it was, and uh, it's a little bit deeper down in the sort of, you know, it's not the most popular Disney movie that they've turned into a live-action movie. It's very popular. They're all very popular. But I don't know. I'm just worried about that because I'm worried that if it doesn't do well people are going to focus on, you know, sort of more identity politics stuff and being like, oh, it's because it was directed by a woman or it's about, a, you know, um, a Chinese woman, um, which, like, should not be factors. That movie just should, should be a big hit if, you know, um, f and I don't know. It just feels like that's one that's going to be, like, very, very colored by this whole narrative. Yeah. Yeah, there's Mulan and then there's, you know, like, Black Widow, yeah. Fast 9, Wonder Woman, Top Gun Maverick. Like, I mean, the thing is, like, these large studios like uh, you know I, I don't i don't want the i don't want mulan to suffer uh i don't want the chance for asian representation or female directed films to suffer because of this yeah. but at the same time i'm like disney ultimately will be okay <laughs> you know what i mean there's just like a lot of other uh, like hidden factors that um are really hard to grapple with you know and yeah. like we just we won't we just won't know we won't know for a long time i think so yeah, South by, I mean, like, think about the the programmers at South by who spend a year of their lives. Like I, the, the woman who runs the shorts program there watched 6,000 short films. What? Yeah. 6,000 submissions. Um, maybe Claudette didn't watch them all with her own eyeballs, but 6,000 submissions, you know, to spend the, the, the year like screening and planning and blah, blah. And then it just like is gone. There is a slim, slim possibility. They're trying to figure out whether or not they might reschedule South by for later. I think they haven't 
offered attendees a refund yet because they're not um, hmm. sure if they might um, reschedule it. But still, I mean, it's not going to be what it was. And yeah. yeah. Um, I don't want to do too much like wild speculation because again, like things are changing quickly, but like I, I can't help but wonder about like movie going kind of changing permanently after all that's, of this. That, like, I, well, I, I've, I read a really credible article or, or um, and I'm sorry, I don't, I can't remember what it was uh, that was saying exactly this, that, this is going to be a huge boon for streamers yeah. and that theater service, like people, once they stop going to movie theater, maybe they won't go back. You yeah, know, exactly. The same way. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I, you know, just going to screenings in New York, like maybe people are there for work, but like, you know, it seems kind of business as usual, but like, again, New York kind of has a certain mindset to it. So like, maybe, you know, maybe that doesn't count for anything, but like, I think interestingly also in New York is, the Broadway theaters, you know, and, and on Broadway, like five shows um, announced that they're going to, you know, drop ticket prices to a flat $50 rate, which is still a lot of money, but it's certainly cheaper than Broadway shows typically are these days, um, you know, in an effort to get people to go. And it's like, OK, on the one hand, you want the industry, you know, because theater always feels very tenuous, you know, unless it's like Wicked or Hamilton. So yeah. on the one hand, you want them to have you know, people in seats and paying customers. But on the other, it's like, well, but also isn't that more of a public safety risk? You know, um, you know, that's another ga- gathering of several hundred people. So I don't know. It's just like, th- th- you know, we we cover an industry that, you know, its core at least used to be a kind of communal experience in a, sh- in a shared kind of public space. And, you know, now that everyone has sort of moved to the couch and to the binge and to the chill, you know, yeah, I could see this having, you know, kind of further pushing people um, away from that live experience, even even if, you know, there are ticket prices, you know, slashed and, and all that stuff. I just, I don't know. I don't know if that's enough of an incentive. Yeah. In a couple of weeks right now, currently scheduled to still happen is CinemaCon, um, which is the Las Vegas kind of convention gathering all yeah. of the movie theater owners. Um, it's, you know, this huge event for exhibitors and all the studios come and like present their upcoming slates. And they've been very, you know, as a as of five days ago, they were very gung ho about going forward with it. I can't tell how likely that is to happen, but if it does happen, it will be a fascinating um, thing to witness because, you know, every year at that thing is basically everyone been like, yeah, Netflix, but you know, we're here. Movie theaters are forever. Um, and you're, you're kind of curious how much they can keep that up uh, in this current environment. Yeah. And um, I was looking at the box office for this weekend. Right. And so there was a big like Pixar premiere this weekend um, and it fell obviously fell short of expectations because people are just not leaving their house if they don't have to I mean I don't know if you guys I don't know if well I mean like maybe the subways in New York are a little emptier but like some sections of California are just a, like a ghost town like people are just not leaving their house like um, and the I think all and stuff like what, <laughs> what, what are you um, about? well like freeways are empty um mm. You know, uh, stores are empty and the shelves are literally empty in some sections. And yeah. And then I keep seeing these like really spooky videos of people going to Disneyland and Disneyland is empty. So Ooh. they're just like running around on like empty trams and no no lines and stuff like that, you know, and like cruise prices have been slashed. So people are going on these like weird empty cruise uh, ships. So maybe that's what we should do. We should all just like go like the three of us should go on a cheap cruise, on a cheap cruise, but just the three of us um, (laughs) and uh, wash our hands a lot. And maybe that's how to cope. 
don't know. I'm definitely stuck between like, I can't believe anyone is going to Disneyland and like, ooh, maybe I should go to Disneyland and take advantage <laughs> of there being no crowds. So right. uh, <laughs> I don't All know right. if that's a good survival instinct or not. It's complicated. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you guys are like concerned about or like looking at in the next uh, couple weeks movie wise? Uh, or is it just too hard to predict? Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's, it's, um, you know, had this kind of really reached the point we are now, I'm I'm, I'm hesitant to call it the peak. Uh, I don't think it is. Like just a few weeks ago, but like now we're really entering big movie season, you know, after kind of a few weeks off. And I don't know, I just feel like a lot of... Th- I, I, I'm, I'm, I would be surprised if more high-profile movies didn't also move their release dates. I mean, some indies did already. Like, they're, they're shifting them kind of optimistically to just, like, six weeks, you know, or, or a month, um, hoping that things are sort of more, more organized by then. I don't think they will be. Um, but, like, I could see, you know, certain studio films just being like, no, we're going to wait till the fall or maybe even the bo- next yeah. year. Yeah. And the Bond delay, though completely understandable... It's so eerie because like all the promo, like all the promo stuff is still happening, right? Because it's already in place. So Daniel Craig is still hosting SNL or Daniel Craig is still on the cover of GQ or whatever it is. Yeah. And you're like, de Armas is on the cover of <laughs> Vanity, yeah, Vanity Fair. Fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, at least that had already come out. But like that these came are the things, before the cancellation. Yeah. yeah. But these things are like rolling out and you're just sort of like, uh, it's a constant reminder of this weird um, limbo that we're existing in, you know? Yeah, it's going to be an extremely weird time to look back at. And a reminder of just how big an apparatus a movie and its marketing is, you know, yeah. like yeah. so many moving parts. And so to to derail a machine that big, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, I think I, I, I don't know the exact figure, but I saw um, something, I think a variety or something that, you know, no matter what happens, the, the film industry is already going to lose billions of dollars this year because of this thing. Um, and it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to be all Trumpy and just talking about the economic, you know, effects of this, but like, it's real, you know, it's already real. It's not speculative. I was looking at videos from the Mulan premiere in LA, uh, which was last night as we record this on like the people serving food at the buffet, um, which, you know, I assume everyone's washing hands and taking precautions, but it, it made me think about all those moving parts and the people who would have lost a gig if they had canceled the Mulan premiere and and how far that goes. Yeah. Absolutely. So it kind of makes you glad for people like Disney or whoever can kind of carry on with their plans to like keep some level of, of the movie industry going. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if the positive effect, um, you know, uh, maybe TV will see some sort of uh, interesting bounce. Maybe everyone just wants to stay home and like rewatch the first two seasons of Westworld and get excited for the Westworld premiere this weekend. I don't know. Um, and then listen to Richard and me talk about it on the still watching podcast. I don't Plug. Know. Um, but you know, like uh, in seriousness, like if people aren't leaving their house, not just to go to the movies, but you know, at all, um, you know, here, here come the binge watches, I suppose. And so it's I don't a great know, season. You know. I mean, we're going to start kicking off Emmy talk uh, on the show probably next week, but it's a great upcoming couple months for television. So I just saw something. I think the biggest tragedy, of this whole thing, um, at least in terms of the entertainment industry, from, I guess, Variety from last night, that Quibi canceled their, their red carpet launch party. Oh, Quibi. What if Quibi is what, what if Quibi like really takes off because everyone's stuck at home? Everyone wants those quick bites. But like, but if you're at home, maybe you want longer stuff. Maybe this is when everyone watches like, um, like Frederick Wiseman documentaries. <laughs> I think you want long bites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> long gulps. 
Um, well, among the movies that are in uh, release now in theaters that may or may not be playing to uh, large crowds of people is Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, which I believe is now only open in New York and L.A. Um, I, it is the kind of indie movie that I hope doesn't suffer from people not wanting to go out because it deserves to be seen on a big screen. Uh, and I also think it's a nice kind of balm in a time of great worry because is this movie set in the Oregon territories like well before it was a state this really rough and tumble wild west world and is about this uh, man named Cookie Figowitz who all he wants is to open a bakery and live a nice quiet life and talk to a cow um, and this vision of like a really hard world to live in and someone finding gentleness and luxury I, I find it kind of soothing to think about uh, Richard you've seen First Cow do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I think that Reichardt, who is such a sharp, but well, also delicate, perceptive filmmaker, um, she is cognizant of the fact that when we're talking about Western expansion, um, you know, of white people into into you know further into the American continent, that is all on the back of an incredible atrocity. So I don't think it. I don't think the movie is making it seem sweet. You know, the kind of the bigger idea of what's happening, but in the immediate with uh, First Cow's two kind of main characters, there is a kind of quiet, agrarian sort of piece to it that, um, you know, is is kind of comforting in a, in a sort of beautiful way, um, even though the movie has dark elements to it. I mean, it begins with something kind of, you know, a sort of statement of darkness um, and kind of follows that thread to the end. Um, but yeah, yeah, I thought it was, I, th- I mean, I, I, I think I wanted a little bit more, emotional payoff in the end but but on the whole i think it's a really you know it's kind of her most narrative film to date in a way um yeah and i think that 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 sort of maybe it might be a good first entry into reichardt if people haven't seen her films before because some of them are pretty you know mood centric and not like not totally reliant on like a, a real linear plot yeah, because this one's kind of a caper, really. It's about yeah. these two guys who kind of team up to steal milk from a cow, the first cow to be in Oregon at this time. Um, and it's, yeah, you can kind of hang your hat on that. It, it's funny in a lot of ways as they, like, you know, sell these oily cakes that they are making, basically donuts, um, back to the guy who they stole the milk from, who's played by Toby Jones, which, you know, if you're not happy to see Toby Jones show up in a movie, I don't know what you're doing. Um, so there's there's all of these, like, nice kind of more traditional storytelling elements to grab into, but then also, like, minute-long segments where you watch some when put on a new pair of shoes um, and you're kind of invited to think about what that <laughs> meant at that point. Um, and I've, I've always been such a sucker for that kind of thing that she does, like where she makes you sit down and sit still and pay attention, which is another reason why First Cow, I didn't see it on a big screen um, and I wish I had been able to, so I hope other people get the chance to because um, it, it merits your attention in that way. I'm a huge fan of uh, John Magaro, who's uh, like, you know, one of the co-leads of this film. Um, he's Cookie Figowitz, the best name in uh, movies in 2020. <laughs> um, he's just been like bumping around, you know, on like Orange is the New Black, uh, Umbrella Academy, which is not a show I love, but I really liked him on it. Or Big Short. He's got a great part in the Big Short. He's just like one of those guys where every time he shows up, I'm like, this guy's here. Uh, so I'm really stoked to see him take center stage in this. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. I just remember him from the Coke commercial. You know the end? No. Okay, so no. so it was, oh God, it was probably over 10 years ago now. John McGarrow I'm talking about. And he, you know, he's he's basically walking through a holiday party at his apartment, singing about all the people who were at his party. Oh, And he's yeah. like, yeah, and he's like saying hi to people. It's a really sweet little, little ad, you know, for a poison soda product. Um, <laughs> uh, but 
yeah, so I don't know. He's just always kind of like had that little soft spot for me. And he's really good in this. And, um, you know, I think it actually did kind of, the movie did kind of well in art house terms uh, its first weekend in New York. Um, so maybe that's, I don't know, maybe people are, are, are sort of looking for, for this kind of thing right now. Something not exactly comforting, but, but certainly more moving at a more contemplative pace. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I should have set up from the beginning of this conversation that I interviewed John Magaro, which is what we're going to share in the back half of this episode, um, kind of about like finding his way uh, into this old West world. And he, I mean, he was lovely to speak to. And it was just, you know, fun talking to him about the gentleness of this character that he's playing and how, how little he fits into the old West, which is what's so satisfying about watching a movie about him, like watching someone who's trying to trying to exist just the way he knows how, like he's an orphan. He like found him his way with this group of fur trappers. Um, but then he kind of invents an entire new food to be able to find his way into it. Um, so we can listen to that. Um, and everyone should go see first cow. I'm really embarrassed. I did not know that that was the interview on this episode. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> Do you want to record anything? Or? No, I, you can even leave this in. I was just, my declaration of love was spontaneous and not like, um, <laughs> a setup. Okay. <laughs> I guess I wanted to start by asking you, I notice that you have now been in a Todd Haynes movie and a Kelly Reichardt movie, and they are kind of famously old, old friends. Is it a coincidence that you've now worked with both of them? Uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it is a coincidence. I, I imagine uh, having worked with Todd, that helped uh, push this one along. Uh, I, I know Kelly did, you know, ask Todd, you know, what he thought of me. Uh, <laughs> So I'm sure sure that helps. So the the recommendation was was a good thing to have. Um, but yeah, they have a, a really long history. They're really close together. They both live in Oregon, and um, they're both brilliant filmmakers. Is that something that that you kind of thought of in terms of? looking for directors like that to work with, like for someone who, you know, you're a working actor, you kind of are all over the place, but you have worked with a remarkable number of really exciting directors. So it, it seems like you're maybe planning it on some level there. Um, You know, I mean, that, that's the hope to get to work with people who are masters at what they do and who have such vision. Um, it, it, that's It's certainly difficult to do. Um, yeah. And I don't feel like I'm in a place quite yet in my career where I'm just able to do that. I don't know even if anyone ever is quite able to do that because you, you know, you, there, there are other things you have to do yeah. that, that aren't just artistic or passion projects. Um, sometimes you're doing things just to make some money. And <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it's, I've been very lucky that I've been able to work with people like Todd and Kelly. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know why that that's the case. I don't know if it's, you know, like a law of attraction or anything like that. It, it just seems to be working out that way. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sure you knew her work well enough to know that working on a Kelly Reichert movie is not like working on a lot of things. I'm sure even Carol was really different. So kind of going into this, knowing you're shooting in the Oregon wilderness, did you know anyone who like worked on Meek's Cutoff or, you know, kind of get any preparation for, for going into making this? No, I didn't. I'm trying to think if I knew anyone who had worked on him. I mean, I, I can passing. I had met some of the people who worked with her, but I didn't really get to talk to any of them about the process before we went into shooting this. But I, I was really excited by the the prospect of it. You know, having seen Meek's Cutoff and reading the script for First Cow, that was sort of the closest thing that I, I that was in my mind to how it might be mm -hmm. because you know it's a frontier movie it's a Kelly film Chris Blavel shot it so you, we had a lot of sort of 
common factors with both, but this turned out to be, uh, you know, a lot more, a lot more contained, you know, even the aspect ratio that, that they chose yeah. is much more uh, personal than Meeks was. Meeks, you know, ha- had a distance to it and, and obviously a wider aspect ratio, but you had a distance, you'd have see entire scenes play out from, you know, a hundred feet away where you would be hearing the dialogue you very quietly in the distance, but, but the idea of that was really exciting to me. You never really get the chance to do things like that yeah. where you um, are allowed to just sort of, sort of exist. But that was still very present in, in this film. You know, it's sort of like she lets the camera roll and, and you just, you know, sink into the, the world. Yeah, I was curious about that because her, her films are so carefully placed and they, like, they let things play out like you were saying. And how aware are you of that when you're there on the set as as compared to something else you might work on? You know that, like, the scene might go on for a minute and it's you tying your shoe and that's just what it's going to be. Um, I mean, I try not to consciously think about that. Uh, you know, I, I try to just be there and, and do whatever whatever it is. You know, I mean, a lot of that is already written into the script, so you you, you sort of have that. You, you already kind of know where you're going. But mm-hmm. a, a good example of that was a scene when I for when Cookie first arrives at King Lou's Hutch, and that's all written in there. You know, he settles in, he sweeps, he uh, goes out and brings in flowers. Mm-hmm. King Lou's out chopping wood, so it's there. Um, but what Kelly gives you is a freedom to just take as much time as you need to, to, to let the situation play out. You don't feel like you're, you know, you're under, a, a, like there's going to be a buzzer or you're under the gun as far as time goes. Yeah. Um, maybe to some audience members, uh, dismay, but, but she, she really lets things just unfold as naturally as they would in, in our day to day lives. Yeah. Um, I love the character of Cookie Figowitz for for so many reasons. His name being a huge one that I'm sure you agree with. Um, but Good also, name, yeah. he he's just not really like anyone you've ever seen in a western. And this isn't really a, a western in the traditional sense, but it's kind of in the same setting. Um, did you have any kind of reference points or either movie or history or anything for this guy who's so gentle and kind of wishes he could just like live in a city with a bakery, but is out in the Oregon frontier instead? Um, yeah, it's hard, you know, because Cookie is like uh, an anti-Western hero, not yeah. an anti-hero, but an anti-Western hero in the sense that he is, you know, like he's very gentle. He doesn't really belong in the West. He um, isn't quite equipped to be in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a cook, but he he, he isn't an aggr- he's not an aggressive person. He's very um, soft-spoken. He's he's meek in a lot of ways, but that's also what sort of drew me to it. You know, it, it's a, a type of Western hero that we haven't seen before, or I can't really think of. I can't think off the top of my head of a Western where you where you see some where you see a male lead who isn't ultra masculine. Yeah. I mean, the closest thing that I that that I found inspiration from was probably like the Apu trilogy, mm. uh, the the Bengali movies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, Kelly Kelly sort of referenced those, and then I, I I watched those, and I think that was, you know, that was about as because he's such a gentle soul too as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think I found a a, 
common thread between the two from that. Um, but that's, that's kind of it. But, you know, this is also like a proto-Western, I feel like. This is before the West was the West. This is right after Lewis and Clark. And, yeah. And yeah, I mean, they say history is not here yet in the... Yeah. Yeah, you don't have like the, the tumbleweed roads and the, and the people with spurs and cowboy hats. It's a, it's kind of just a collage of all different types of cultures and and different types of people, um, finding a way in this new world. Yeah. Did you do kind of the deep dive on historical research on Oregon at this time? I had a few books um, that I, I looked at. I mean, obviously, um, Half Life is a good reference yeah. point. That the the book the book that it's based on. The book that yeah. it's based on. Uh, what I found most helpful is Kelly sent me a couple kind of cook manuals from the Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm. Um, so you, by cooking my way through those two cookbooks, uh, I found I, I started to form a connection kind of with that world and, and with kind of the patience it took to, to prepare these recipes and the limited resources mm. you had. Uh, as you were making things uh, on the frontier, um, how uh, how awful was yeah. that food? I assume it was awful. It's actually no, it's actually very good. Yeah. I mean, it's very rust. Yeah, it's very rustic cooking. I, I, you know, so much depends on the ingredients you get. Uh, obviously, like if you're eating a roadkill raccoon, it's probably not <laughs> going to be the tastiest protein you're ever going to have. But, you know, if you follow the recipes and you have access to chicken or, 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 or game bird or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it's actually pretty, pretty tasty. And it's very pure because, you know, there's not a lot to it. It's just simple, delicious, earthy ingredients that, that you would have available to you. And I, I assume it's not a lot of baking because that's the kind of thing that you couldn't get access to on the trail. Well, yeah, there is, you know, there is baking, but a lot of the baking, you know, if you didn't have milk, uh, it was a lot of pretty boring, hardtack kind of breads. Yeah. Where it's just, you know, and I think there's a line in this, I'm sick of this flour, water, bread, like where it's just flour and water, basically. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that certainly is pretty boring. Uh, And they also didn't have baking soda or anything like that. So it it would have been challenging to bake. But I found you know, there's a lot of stews, uh, a lot of um, you know, like a lot of a lot of basically a lot of stews, like yeah. a lot of meat stews and yeah. root vegetable stews, things like things like that. Well, what kind of cook were you before you went on this project? I mean, I've always it's my it's my like pastime. It's okay. probably one of my favorite. I find it very peaceful. It helps me quiet my mind after a long day. I like to whip up a meal. Um, so someone gives you a cookbook uh, and says, cook your way through this. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I can do this. I mean, it depends what it is. If, <laughs> I, if I don't connect like any book, if I don't connect with it, you know, after the first few, whatever recipes or pages, I might be like, yeah, maybe this one's not for me. But if I, if I like it, yeah, I'll find my way cooking through it. So what do you think is like, do you figure out all the ingredients of these cakes that, that cookie is making? Like to me, it kind of basically looked like a funnel cake, something like that. What, what's, what's your sense of what it's actually made of? I think, I think the closest thing that I could equate to it is like a beignet. Oh yeah. That's the fancier version. It's it's pretty much exactly that. You know, it's like, it's like flour, milk, butter, sugar, water, 
And then, you know, we don't have the powdered sugar, but we put on the honey or you might put on like a, a jam or, or something like that. But it tastes, you know, it basically tastes like a donut without the glaze or without the frosting or anything like that. Yeah, but with like the honey and the cinnamon on top, you kind of get the... Uh, yeah, yeah. The but it's, you know, it's fried dough. It's fried. It's That's all. It's just fried dough. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it looks you know, fantastic. it's very tasty. I mean, it's good. If you're right, like saying funnel cakes, that's a good, that's also another close example. Funnel cakes are a little more airy, I think, than these are. These are a mm. little more dense, like a cake donut. Yeah. Um, so that's basically what you guys were eating, though. Like, you you, you were just eating a, a donut, effectively, when you guys had them. Yeah, time. basically. That's that's pretty much what you're eating, yes. Yeah, I mean, like, so many movies will do, like, food porn, where they make something look, like, glistening and gorgeous. And this doesn't really do that, but you get the appeal somehow at the same time. I don't know what kind of magic they were working with the camera to do that. I don't know. Maybe it was because everything else was so stark and so, and so gr- gr- grim and gloomy yeah. that that these that these things we were cooking stuck out. I mean, certainly the clafouti is like a beautiful thing in this mucky muck world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those blueberries look gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, I watching it, I was thinking both about how everything in the, in this world and in this time is like gloomy and gross, but also how it, it looks kind of fun to like set up a Western camp on a movie set. Like, you know, you've made period films before, but I don't is, is there something about like being in the Western world where you're like, OK, this is real movie magic. Like I am doing some real time travel here. Well, I, yeah, I always find it fun to be on, you know, we weren't on a, on a back lot. We were in a, 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 I think it was a state park who let us build this little town kind of little frontier village. Um, but I've been on other things where you're on a back lot and they build a little town. I mean, you know, that's really a magical thing about movie making. Uh, you know, that's a lot of people go to these you know, Universal Studios or Disney or whatever and, and get to see these behind the scenes tours and yeah. i even remember the first few times i was in la walking uh, through lots and seeing like you know the new york street and stuff like that yeah it, i mean it's really it, it's a really magical feeling if you have great production designers which we did with tony gasparo on this like it it um it really transports you into that into that world and makes your job a lot easier. And you guys were not that far from Portland, right? Like, it's not like you were out in the true wilderness. I mean, I guess you were because you were in a state park, but, you know, you could stay in a hotel at the end of the night. Yeah, but that's one of the beautiful things about the Pacific Northwest is that you have these cities, but not far outside of the cities is this lush, beautiful nature that's untouched. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of it has already been logged, yeah. which has, you know, is becoming less and less. And we had, I think we had a little trouble finding the right kind of forest that hadn't been touched, but we were fortunate enough to find some, you know, some state parks that hadn't been logged. Mm-hmm. Um, but along the highways, you'll see, you know, very young trees that are just sprouting up that are only, you know, a few decades old. Um, and they don't have that, they don't have that, um, rich canopy that the untouched forest had yeah um so but but it was never that far you know it was at most about 30 minutes outside of the city and all of a sudden you'd be transported to centuries ago yeah there's just that amazing sense of time travel when you like you know the, the opening of the movie is so simple where you just like start in the present and then you jump back and everything looks the same and you get the sense of time being being shorter than you realize in your normal human lifespan. It's a uh, it's a lot it's a lot for the first fifteen minutes of a movie. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's you know, and Kelly's 
fashion, it, it's a way to bring you, you know, into her world and sort of understand her language as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm such a fan of her work, and I feel like I watch it and I think about all these different themes and big ideas about history and masculinity, like you were talking about, and the way that Native Americans are looped into this. And I'm sure as a smart filmmaker and as a smart actor, you guys talk about these things. But but how much of that is in your head when you guys go into this? Do you have those early conversations, or do you just have to be cookie and then kind of let those ideas come in later? Um, I, You know... I... I try not to, to do the interpretation. I leave that up to the director, the, the kind of the academic part of it. Um, I, I, I'm a big believer of what I need to know is what the character knows, and that's kind yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to be playing into, well, this is the theme and this is the story. And, you know, I, it, it was never on my mind about Cookie's masculinity or lack of masculinity in, in the role. Uh, it's just sort of how, how, how my gut or my feeling is on, on the character and where they fit in the story. Um, you know, you certainly do some research beforehand and you think about these things, but then when I show up, I, I, I just want to let that go and live in the moment and try and be as honest and authentic as I possibly can be. And then later, you know, when you see it, when it's all put together, then you can have some fun analyzing it and really, you know, digging into it a bit more. Yeah. I mean, so Kelly, I think said in another interview that she kind of sent you and your co-star Orion Lee, like off into the woods together to kind of work on building that. So like, what were the conversations that the two of you had or, or with her to kind of, um, to get you guys in that headspace? Well, I, you know, I, I, when I, before I was going to go out to Oregon, I sort of was asking her about other things and, and we talked about Meeks and she mentioned that the uh, cast in that did a um, sort of a uh, Oregon Trail kind of, not really an Oregon Trail boot camp, but like they did like a, like a mock village where they learned some skills and they practiced trading, how they would have traded at that time, the 1840s. And, um, and uh, so I, I sort of was like, is there anything we can do sort of like that for our world as well? So production found a guide for us who is a, a, a fellow who, who does reenactments, primarily Lewis and Clark, you know, early 1800s, mm-hmm. around this period where the fur trapping companies are becoming very dominant in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and he came out from Idaho and they found us a little, you know, plot of land on this farm where we could <laughs> do what we wanted. Uh, so we set up camp there for three days and she taught us some skills like how to make fire, you know, with just uh, um, a flint and some, some tinder and uh, foraging for, for fruit and berries and things like that. And uh, how to skin a, an animal that you might catch, wow. build traps stuff like that so we it was kind of a crash course but it was also really valuable because i didn't know orion you know we just met Mm -hmm. so it gave us three days before we started shooting to get to know each other and and and, you know spend three days all day every day with each other learning each other's rhythms and learning how each other you know was as a person and how they might be on set so it was nice did you do you consider yourself more outdoorsy after going through all of this Certainly not. <laughs> uh, 
I wouldn't even begin to say I've become more outdoorsy. I mean, may, maybe, but like, but like when, when I see these guys who and people who are really outdoorsy, I don't think I could. Uh, I don't think I could could hold a candle to. But them. are you like personally more likely to go camping after doing this? Like, do you see the appeal maybe more than you did before? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I would go camping before I. I uh, when I was younger, I would go on treks. I'd go overseas and take long treks, like in, oh, okay. you in South, Southern Asia and then South America and things like that. And um, I mean, maybe I would be more inclined to do what Cookie did. Like, I like to be moving. I don't like to just sort of stay in one place in camp. I like to uh, have a journey. Yeah. So, so that's something that's still appealing to me. Yeah. Wait, you've you've been acting for a long time. When did you have time to do these uh, international treks while building an acting career at the same time? Uh, before I was married, I would, uh, <laughs> I would, if I finished a job, I would go away for three weeks. And you know, I'd finish a job and then take a little three week. I, I always, I always find it really helpful for me after I finish a job to go somewhere and and just sort of reset and clear my mind. Yeah. That's a, a huge benefit of an acting life where you kind of, got, you know, you have a clean break at the end of one thing and before you jump into another. Yeah, one. but then then the unfortunate part is you might take that journey and then that work for about a year. Or six months, <laughs> and then, then, you, then you just feel like an asshole. <laughs> um, I think that maybe that's a good place to end this. Um, thank you so much for uh, for getting on the phone. I really loved this movie and loved watching it and loved you in it. So like we were saying, oh, I, thank I, you. I, I hope, hope people, people see it. it. Thank you I for... hope people see it on the big screen. It's such a good, like, yeah, they should. Cover. They should. It's really beautiful. And it's a special film. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And uh, uh, thanks again. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Richard, you wanted to say one last thing about First Cal? Yeah. Um, if anyone is in the Olympia area next month and the festival has not been called off, uh, I will be doing an onstage Q&A with Kelly Reichardt after a screening of First Cow. Um, oh, I'm so jealous. So come on by if things aren't canceled or I'm not canceled or whatever. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. The world isn't canceled. <laughs> um, it should be fun. She's a good interview. Oh, man, that would be fantastic. Okay, well, uh, in the meantime, uh, hopefully keep listening to us. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Um, you can find us at VanityFair.com. Um, uh, Joanna is going to be uh, writing more about South by Southwest, so a lot of the things we talked about in this episode will be in her story. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. We love hearing from the Little Goldies. Uh, and you can find us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for how we're going to be surviving Emmy season in the age of peak TV goes to Joanna Robinson. Here come the binge watches, I suppose. 